The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. Well, my personality type tends to make Eeyore look a little bit more like Tigger. How many of you are familiar with those characters? Tigger's the one that's always excited. Eeyore's the one that's always down in the dumps. My personality tends to make Eeyore actually look a little bit more like Tigger. When uh, Sarah and I were first uh, getting ready to get married, we were going to pre-marriage counseling, and then we actually went to counseling for about a year after we got married, and that's a whole other story. We won't get into all of that today. But part of that process was they uh, had us do different personality tests to kind of get to know each other, see how we're kind of wired, and when the counselor got ours back, uh, she came back with the results and she said, I have never seen somebody that's as melancholy, that's as extremely melancholy as you are, Nick. And she was almost saying it like a warning to Sarah, like, are you sure you want to marry this guy? Like, being married to him is going to be kind of a downer a little bit. Um, people ask me, are you a glass half full or half empty kind of guy? And my response is usually, I'm the type of guy that's like, the glass is broken, right? It's not half full, it's not half, it's just, it's just busted. Uh, my personality tends to be uh, pretty... Uh, Debbie Downer, you could say. And the reason I say all that is because uh, this morning we're going to look at uh, good news for people that struggle grumbling and complaining. And I just want to say on the outset that I am somebody who struggles with grumbling and complaining, partly because of my natural event. You know, it's easy for me to kind of fall into that. And as I was getting ready to preach this sermon, I was even struggling a little bit because on the one hand, I didn't want to preach a message about grumbling and complaining. I knew it would be convicting. I knew I would struggle with it. And then I realized I'm complaining about complaining. And so on the one hand, I was kind of nervous. I did a little apprehensive. On the other hand, though, I will say that going through this process, uh, going through this framework that we've been looking at each week, uh, for me personally, has been incredibly helpful and spiritually a healthy practice to do. So this morning, I really just want to share how God took me through this framework this morning. And we're going to look at good news for people who struggle with complaining and grumbling. If you have a Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. If you are physically able, I'd like to invite you to stand. We are wrapping up our series this morning called Blue Collar Gospel. Each week, we've looked at four different implications of the good news of Jesus. Because of the good news of Jesus, we can see these four different things, and we've seen each week what sin does to us. And we've looked at different sins. We've looked at anger. We've looked at shame. We've looked at addiction. We've looked at different sin, and we've seen what that particular sin does to us. The Bible says sin, when it's finished, brings forth death, and it brings death to our relationships and to our finances and to our spiritual health. And we've seen the danger of sin, not just to kind of be depressing, but really, partly so that we could realize, I need to take ownership of my own sin. I need to take ownership. If I'm going to get victory, if I'm going to live in the victory that Jesus Christ has already won for me, it starts by taking ownership and taking responsibility and realizing what sin does to us. But then we don't just stop there. Each week we see what God does for us in our sin. We've seen how God rescues us from our sin. We've seen what God does for us. And then not only what does God do for us, but we've seen each week what Christ now is doing in us because we're a new creation and we're now, Christ is in us and we're now in him. We see what he does through us. And then lastly, each week as we look at this holistic process for spiritual maturity, we see what does the Holy Spirit of God now want to do through me? what God does for me, what Christ is doing in me, and then what's the overflow of that? What's the outward manifestation? Because of what Christ is doing in me and because of what God has done for me, what is my life going to look like now? And how is my life going to be different? And this morning, we're going to march our way 
through this framework. On your way in, you should have received uh, one of our service program guides. On the inside, there's an outline that you can use to follow along throughout the message. We also have uh, your small group conversation guide in there. We also have some devotions to kind of help you dive a little bit deeper into this idea that we're looking at this week. But let's read our our text where we'll be beginning this morning, Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at several different passages in Philippians, but Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15 says, Do all things... Don't you just love it when the Bible throws out that? Do everything. Do all things. Man, for being only three letters, all is a big word. Do all things without murmuring and disputing. Because if you're to go look up murmuring, simply means uh, an expression of discontent. Complaining simply means to express dissatisfaction. So you could say do all things without complaining and disputing. Disputing is kind of like an argumentative spirit. Do all things without murmuring and disputing that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Let's pray, then we're going to jump into our study this morning. Father, we love you so much, and we thank you for the good news of Jesus. And Lord, we thank you how, because you sent your son to die for us, we now get to experience all spiritual blessings, and we get to experience your provision as our heavenly father, and how because of that, Christ is now in us, we get to experience authentic soul-level contentment, which ultimately leads to spirit-filled rejoicing. I pray that you'd speak to us through your word this morning. We ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, in our text, the word without says, do all things without murmuring and disputing, because that word without suggests isolation. So really, what Paul is saying is that believers' lives should be isolated from grumbling and complaining. Grumbling and complaining should not be a part of believers' lives. That's what it means to be without it. Your life should be isolated from it. It should be totally and completely separate. You see, excuse me, grumbling and complaining happens when we become discontented. We become discontented with our circumstances. We become discontent with our relationships or the people in our lives. And as a result, we begin to murmur. We begin to complain. We begin to express our dissatisfaction. Now, I'll say at the outset, complaining is one of those things that on the surface doesn't seem as heavy as some of the things we looked at, like complaining or shame. Pastor Nick, shame is a big deal. Addiction is a big deal. Struggling with real anger is a big deal. Why are we talking about complaining? And it's true that all of us may or may not be chronic complainers, but the truth is all of us complain. And the reason it's such a big deal is because complaining at its core is forgetting the goodness and provision of God. At its core, complaining is forgetting the goodness and provision of God. Take the nation of Israel, for example. The God of all the universe, the God that spoke the world into existence, had just tossed around Pharaoh. So if you go all the way back to the book of Exodus, the very beginning of the Bible, you see God had just tossed around Pharaoh, the most powerful man in all the world. He was a Pharaoh. He was a leader of Egypt. And the nation of Israel, they were slaves to Egypt. God just tossed around Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, like a ragdoll. How many of you have ever seen the movie Toy Story 3? And you know there's that scene where all the toys, they're in the daycare, and they're just getting thrown around and slobbered on and kicked and misused. That's what God did to Pharaoh. Threw him around like a toddler throws a ragdoll. God not only tossed him around, but God broke his spirit. He humbled him. He revealed Pharaoh's complete impotence. A slave people and their God left Pharaoh and the most powerful nation in the world in shambles. And this display of power sent vibrations throughout the known world. It sent fear and awe into the known world. When every time the nation of Israel would come up on a city or on another nation, they would get afraid. They'd be like, "This is the, look, look what their God did to Egypt. He totally destroyed them. 
And just right after God gives the nation of Israel their freedom, they're, they're, they're out. They just ransacked Egypt. They pillaged it. They got all their gold. They got all their wealth. They got all their riches. And they're on their way to freedom. And Egypt begins to pursue them with their entire army. And in that moment, the nation of Israel begins complaining. They go up to Moses and they said, did you bring us into this wilderness to die because there's no graves in Egypt? You can almost sense the sarcasm. Egypt was preoccupied with death and mummification and burial. So when they say there's no graves in Egypt, they're being sarcastic. And they're like, really, Moses, you brought us out here to die? You see, because in that moment, they had forgotten about God and how he had just delivered them. They forgot about the awesome display of his power they just saw through all the plagues. A little while later, they're wandering through the desert and they're complaining about needing water. Because in that moment, they had forgotten that God had just parted the Red Sea. God just displayed awesome power over this giant body of water, and now they're complaining about being thirsty. A little down the road, they're complaining about not having enough food. In that moment of complaint, they literally had forgotten how God just provided water out of a rock. Like, that would have been a cool miracle to see. God made water come out of a dry, dusty rock. But in that moment, they're complaining about being hungry. It's because they had forgotten how God had provided. A little while later, they're complaining because they want the meat. Where's the meat, Moses? In that moment of complaint, they had forgotten how God had just provided food out of heaven. Manna, the New Testament calls it angel food. In their complaint, they had forgotten about God. Now, I I will say, all of these things that they were complaining about were needed. If there's a giant pagan army coming after you to wipe you out, that's, that's legitimate fear, right? You need water to survive. You need to eat to survive. All of these things were legitimate needs, but the fact that they were complaining revealed a lack of trust in God in face of those needs. And oftentimes the things we complain about, they're real problems. But instead of trusting God as we work through those problems, we just complain. Like the nation of Israel, we forget how powerful God is and we forget how good he's been to us. You and I, we're like the nation of Israel. We say, God, I know you've forgiven all my sins at the cross. I know you've saved me from eternal conscious torment. God, I know you've given me everlasting joy in your presence, but I really don't want to eat ramen again for dinner. (laughs) And we complain. My life, Lord, I do not want to change another dirty diaper. Kid, you just made that last diaper a mess. Why can't you just, I don't know, (laughs) why am I having to change your diaper again? We complain, law, the traffic in this city is so bad, it's that stupid high-speed rail. That's, that, that's, that's why traffic is, and we, and we complain. Because we forget the goodness and the provision of God. You see, grumbling, whining, and complaining are not ultimately our heart's responses to circumstances. I mean, the nation of Israel, they complain when they're in Egypt. They complain when they're out of Egypt. They complain when God safely took them through the wilderness. They're complaining and are complaining. It wasn't because of their circumstances. It wasn't rooted in their scenery. It was rooted in their heart and the fact that they did not trust God. It wasn't their circumstances, it was their heart. And this is dangerous. What does this do to us? We see as we look at this topic of complaining, we see it's simply forgetting the goodness and provision of God. God had just saved Israel and yet they found themselves complaining. And the same is true for us. A heart of gratitude and thankfulness is not dependent on your bank statement. Complaining and grumbling, regardless of your situations, even even in our suffering, when we find ourselves complaining and grumbling, it reflects our heart because we've forgotten God's goodness. You see, spiritual amnesia is a deadly disease that will threaten your faith and your enjoy like few things will. It, It penetrates to our very core and it rots our heart from within. You see, every time we start complaining, it's because in that moment, 
We're not meditating on the goodness of God. And if left unchecked, this is why it gets so dangerous. If left unchecked, this grumbling and this complaining, what'll happen over time is it begins to reinforce a false identity. The more I grumble and the more I complain, it reinforces this false identity, and now all of a sudden I've become someone who's entitled, and I feel like the world owes me, and I feel like I'm always getting the short end of a stick, and nothing's ever good enough, and I begin to get this sense that, man, the world just owes me. And then this spills over into our walk with God. We begin to, we begin to, think, think, we begin to think that God owes me. God, I've kept my nose clean. God, I've, I've done all this good thing. God, I've gone to church. I don't, I, don't, I don't deserve this trial. I don't deserve this difficulty. I don't deserve this problem. And we see how that grumbling and complaining spirit, it reinforces a false identity of someone who's entitled and who's always in need and in lack. And we begin to project that on our own walk with God. And we begin to renew our minds in things that are not true. And the reason Paul addresses this in Philippians, he says, do all things without murmuring and disputing that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God. He's not saying by not complaining, that's how you become a son of God. That was settled at the cross of Calvary. We know that's by grace through faith. What he's saying is, because you're a son and daughter of God, complaining has no place in our life. That you may be blameless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom he shines as lights as the world. Paul's saying when we get caught up in complaining, and when we get caught up in grumbling, and when we start complaining all the time about all the bad things in our life, what we're actually doing is we're actually hindering our testimony. We're hindering our ability to shine for Jesus. The reason we don't complain is so that the lost world can see Jesus. And when we fall into that, we're actually keeping other people from seeing the light of Jesus. So these verses are a warning. Because when we fall into grumbling and complaining, it actually hurts our witness. When we jump online and we start grumbling and complaining about uh, what this political party did or that political party did, and we start grumbling and we start complaining, we're actually hindering our testimony and our witness for Christ. When I'm grumbling and complaining at my job about upper management, I'm hindering my testimony. Paul says this is dangerous. It's reinforcing a false identity, and it's actually hindering your witness for Christ. So what is the solution for our complaining? Like we've seen, oftentimes these things that bring on complaining, they're, they're real needs. The real issues that we have to work through. So how does God meet us in our lack? How does God meet us in the middle of situations that often cause complaining? Very simply, he provides for us. All throughout scripture, we see a God who loves to provide for his people. Let's go all the way back to the very beginning again. Let's go all the way back to the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, there's a man, his name is Abraham. God made Abraham to promise. He says, I'm gonna birth a nation through you. And that, you're gonna see that begin to be fulfilled through the miraculous birth of a son. Now, Abraham was an extremely old dude. He was well past, him and his wife were well past the years of having a kid, much less raising one. I don't know about you, I don't want to be raising a toddler when I'm 90. <laughs> but, but God miraculously gave them a son. God miraculously provided because Abraham was trusting in God. But then one day, Abraham comes up to God, or God comes up to Abraham and he says, I want you to sacrifice your son. I don't know about you, I probably would have complained about that. God, this was a miracle. Sacrifice my son. God, this is, this, all, all the promises hinge on him. You're going to birth this nation through, through him, and now, and now you want me to sacrifice him? God, what's going on? God, I don't understand. God, I don't deserve this. But we see as Abraham trusted God, he prepared to follow God's instruction. In Abraham's moment of obedience, on top of Mount Moriah, God miraculously provided a lamb for a sacrifice. And this was the first time throughout Scripture we see the name for God, Jehovah Jireh. That means God who provides. 
God is our provider. And just like God has provided a lamb for Abraham, God has provided us a lamb, his son, his only begotten son, to be sacrificed for us on Calvary. And through his sacrifice, all the riches of God in Christ Jesus are now now made available to us. Because God is our provider, we are blessed with all spiritual blessings. Because of the sacrifice that God gave through Jesus, we now get to experience our heavenly Father who loves to provide for his children. Spurgeon said in the cross, there's a cure for every spiritual disease. We can never go to it too often. And so how does God meet us? He provides for us. And the way he provides for us is by sending his son to live and to die and to rise again and conquer death on our behalf. Because of that, God has given us provision for every need in the cross of Jesus. How does God meet us in our complaining? God provides for us. Go back to the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verse 19. It says, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches. Not according to my riches, not according to your riches, not according to the economy's riches or America's riches or somebody else's riches, according to all his riches that never run out. God promises, I will provide for you. God delights to provide for his children. Ephesians chapter 1, I love these verses. We see a picture of how God blesses and provides for us. Ephesians 1, verse 3 through 8 says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. God delights, it was his pleasure, it was his good will to save you according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us. Not gave you a little bit, not kind of sprinkled it, not gave you a little taste. No, he lavished, lavished it on us and the beloved one. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. Because God gave us his son to die for our sins, we get to experience all spiritual blessings. We get to experience the provision of God. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 77. Psalm 77 was written uh, by Asaph. Don't really know much about him. We know he wrote some of the Psalms, and that's about it. Uh, But in Psalm 77, we see Asaph wrestling with what we're talking about this morning. He's wrestling with complaining. He's wrestling with the difficulties in our life. And if we pick it up in Psalm 77, verse 6, He says, I call to remembrance my song in the night. I commune with my own heart, and my spirit made diligent search. Verse 7, will the Lord cast us off forever? And will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Does his promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? You see, this is what complaining does to us. It begins to reinforce things that aren't true. We begin to wrestle with things that scriptures say are not true. Did God promise his fail? No. Did God's mercy run out? No. But when we fall into complaining, it reinforces things. We begin wrestling with things that scriptures say are not true. But notice what he does. Notice verse number 10. He goes on and he says, and I said, this is my infirmity, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I'm going to remind myself what God did for me. In my complaining, in my difficulty, in my suffering, in my lack. Yes, I'm wrestling with things that I know are not true. But in that moment, I'm going to remind myself of who God is and what God does for me. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember the wonders of the old. I will meditate also of all thy works and talk of all thy doings. That way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? Nobody. 
Yes, God, it feels like your mercies are failing, but I know that's not true, and I know there's nobody as awesome as you. Verse 14, thou art the God that does wonders. Thou hast declared thy strength among the people. Thou hast with thine hand, with thine arm, redeemed thy people. He's reminding himself of how God has redeemed him. He's reminding himself of what God has done for him. Verse 16, the waters saw thee, O God, the waters saw thee, and they were afraid. The depths also were troubled. The clouds poured out water. The sky sent out a sound. Thine arrows also went abroad. The voice of thy thunder was in the heavens. The lightning lightened the world. The earth trembled and shook. Asaph is saying, when the world sees how God is, the whole earth trembles. That is his power. That is his might. That is his majesty. And he uses all of that to provide for us. In Asaph's moment of complaint, what does he do? He begins reminding himself of who God is. He begins reminding himself how God has redeemed me. He's done all his marvelous works for me. Lord, nobody is like you. Like I said earlier, this is something I struggle with. In this past week, in my devotions, I, I actually I, I wrote out a list of all the things that God has done for us in Scripture. And this, mo- this morning, I kind of want to read these and share these to you. Now, I'm going to read them slowly because my goal is I, I, I want these things to sink into our heart. Sometimes we take these things for granted because we get so used to hearing them, but as I read them, I want you to ponder them. Maybe write down the references so you can go and remind yourself of these things later. But Philippians 2.13 says, God is working in us. We just got a glimpse of his power in Psalm 77. That same God is working in you right now. God is working in us. Philippians 3.9 tells us that God has given us his righteousness. There's going to be moments when you feel like you're not good enough. There's going to be moments the world tells you you're not good enough. Parents, there's going to be moments where you feel like a failure as a parent. Spouses, there's going to be times you feel like a failure as a spouse. There's going to be moments when you feel like you're not good enough. But my friend, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God has given us not our righteousness, but his righteousness. Philippians 3.9. Psalm 23.6, God has given us his goodness and his faithful love. Psalm 23 says they follow us. Always. He's given us his goodness and his faithful love. Romans 8, 28, God works all things, even hard things for our good. Those things we try to avoid in our lives, those things we try to build structure into our lives so they never happen, those things we pray we don't ever have to experience, God says even those things, I can use them for your good. Even hard things. Romans 8, 32, I mean this one right here, this is the list. God did not spare his own son for us. Romans 8, verse 32. God loves you so much, he did not even spare Jesus for you. Do we really think he's not going to provide us something we need? I mean, okay, so let's get personal. If it was between your life and the life of my son, I'm sorry, I'll say nice things at your funeral. (laughs) But I'm not going to spare my, that's how much God loves you. He didn't even spare Jesus for you. God did not spare his own son for us. Isaiah 41.10, God will help us. God will strengthen us. God will hold on to us. There's moments in your life where you feel like you're drowning and you feel like you can't catch your breath and you're like, I just need a life raft. In that moment, based on Isaiah 41.10, we know that God is holding on to me. God has got me. And all his power and all his majesty, God is holding on to me. And Jesus said in the New Testament, nobody can pluck you out of his hand. Not even yourself. (laughs) God is holding on to me. Hebrews 13, 5, he's never going to leave us or abandon us. Your friends may abandon you, people may leave, but God says, I will never leave or abandon you. Philippians 1, 6, God will complete what he started in you. Sometimes I get so discouraged by how much growing I still have to do. And we get so overwhelmed with, man, I've got a long ways to go. 
we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God will finish what he started. Philippians 1.6. God will complete what he started in us. Psalm 16.11, God gives us not a little joy, not some joy, abundant joy in his presence. Psalm 16.11. Abundant joy. Having a bad day? Go spend some time with God. There's abundant joy in his presence. Matthew 28.18-20, God is with us until the end of all time. Jeremiah 32, 41, God takes delight in doing what is good for us. God doesn't just do what's good for us out of duty. You're like, all right, I guess you're my child now, so I have to do what's good for you. No, he loves it. He takes delight in it. God delights in providing for you. God delights in taking care of you. I love this one. Zephaniah 3, 17, God rejoices over me with gladness. You know, God is rejoicing over you right now. He loves you. He delights in you. When he looks down at you and he sees his beloved son or his beloved daughter, he gets a big old smile on his face. God delights in you. There's going to be moments where your spouse doesn't delight in you. There's going to be, some of you guys are shaking your head, yeah, yep, this week, you know. There's going to be moments your boss doesn't delight. There's going to be moments people just don't delight in you because let's face it, all of us have undelightable moments. But God says, I always delight in you. I rejoice over you with gladness. I love you. This is what God does for us. This is who God is for us. And yet, sometimes I think I should get an award for how I find ways to complain. Like, you have to be pretty skilled to find ways to complain when all this is our new reality. So when you feel that complaint forming in your heart, do what Asaph did. Remind yourself of who God is. Remind yourself of what God has done for you. You see, forgetting the provision of God tempts us to crave what is temporary and devalue what is eternal. When we forget all the ways that God has blessed us, we start to look to a million different things to satisfy our hearts. And we, we place expectations on relationships and on finances and on the economy and on government. We place expectations on all these things for us to have delight and for us to be blessed by. And, and, and no wonder we fall into complaining. All these things will let you down. If I am the source, if your spouse is the source, if another person is your source of satisfaction, you will be let down. But when we remind ourselves of how good God is, if we don't have something in our lives, we can trust that God will provide it for us. Or he will give us the grace to go without it. It's really easy for me to pray, God, because I'm your son and you delight in me, would you give me a 69 Mustang fastback, preferably cherry red? No, God's going to give me the grace to go without some things. But because God is so good and he lavishes his provision on us, we can be okay with that. That's good news. God the delights to provide for you. So as we continue working our way through this framework, we've seen what the sin of grumbling and complaining does to us. It hinders our testimony and it reinforces a lie. But what does God do for us? He provides for us. God delights to provide for you. But, but get this, God doesn't just give you all this cool stuff and then leave you in a room like a spoiled toddler complaining about the things you don't have, right? All of his parents are like, yeah, I know what you mean. My kids have been there. Room full of toys, but complaining about the one they don't have. God doesn't just leave us there. Christ does something even better. When we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior by grace through faith, he now comes into our lives, and he produces this authentic soul-level contentment that can only be found in him. So yes, God provides for us, but now... Christ is inside of us, and because Christ is inside of us, Christ produces contentment. Go back to Philippians chapter 4. We'll read verses 11, 12, and 13. It says, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned. <laughs> I love how Paul, he's just being real. He's like, I had to learn this. I have learned 
in whatever stead I am, therewith to be content. You say, okay, Paul, but you're like, you know, varsity Christian. You're like the guy that's charging the way, starting the New Testament church. You're like the greatest missionary in the world. Surely you're in a good state to be able to say that. But no, look at verse 12. I know how to be abased. It means have nothing. I know how to abound. Let's have a lot. Everywhere and in all things, I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry. I know how to abound and I know how to suffer, need. Paul says we can be content because we have Jesus, whether we have a lot or we have nothing. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, experiencing this soul-level contentment and difficulty, it seems impossible. I mean, especially in the face of legitimate needs. I mean, these things we complain about, they're real. They're real. They're legitimate needs. No one's questioning that. And sometimes it seems like, man, experiencing contentment in that moment is impossible, but that's why Paul attached verse 13, I can do all things through Christ with being content. So yes, you can be content because you have Christ in all things. When you're suffering, when you're going through unspeakable hardships, when you have so much lack, when you've looked at the bills and the budget's just not adding up for the bills and you're, you don't know what you're going to do, when your relationships are hard, when your job is hard, when the economy is hard, when it seems like our country is falling apart and you're worried about the type of place our kids are going to grow up in, even in those moments, you can be content because I can be content through Christ who strengthens me. I mean, Paul says, even when we're hungry. How many of you have ever been hangry before? It's 11.30. Some of you are getting there now. You're like, Pastor Nick, let's speed this up. Lunch is coming. Jacob, put your hand down, man. He's like, yeah, give me some food. Paul says, even when we're hungry. I mean, all of us have been there where you're just so hungry, you're kind of grouchy. This past week, Sarah, she, took, she went to the store and she took Nicholas. And so I had the three babies. I had Michael, Brooklyn, and then the new one, Evelyn. And Michael, he was just happy as a pig in mud, right? Totally content, in his own little world, having the time of his life. Brooklyn was okay, uh, but Evelyn, because she's a new baby, she still likes to be held, and so she's not being held, sometimes she'll cry. And so, of course, you don't have to twist my arm to go hold my new daughter, right? I love it. So I'm holding her, you know, we're good, we're bouncing around, we're doing good. And as soon as I hold her, and as soon as Evelyn starts, you know, kind of calming down, Brooklyn comes up, she has a real jealous look on her face and goes... That's a way of saying, hold me now. I'm like, oh, okay. So, you know, Evelyn's good. So I, I put her down and then I pick up Brooklyn and, you know, we're doing good. But as soon as I put down Evelyn, she starts crying. And then I'm like, okay, Brooklyn, you're just going to have to be a big girl. We got to hold Evelyn. She's a baby. And so I pick up Evelyn. I get her to stop crying. And then Brooklyn starts crying. And I'm like, all right. So I put down Evelyn and I go pick up Brooklyn. And now Evelyn's crying. And then I put, and I'm going back and forth, back and forth. And I'm like, I cannot handle you women. You are too much for me. Sarah was gone. I texted her, I'm like, hey, babe, no rush. But are you coming home soon? I cannot deal with these women right now. And Sarah, in her wisdom as a mom, she's like, it's 6 o'clock. Brooklyn's probably just hungry. And I'm like, oh, yeah, duh, dinner. <laughs> and so I take Brooklyn downstairs. I give her some nuggets. And she's just happy as a pig in mud. She was just hangry. Paul says, even in that moment, even when we're hangry, even when it's lunchtime and we don't, can't go to where we want to go eat, even in that moment, Christ, Paul says you can experience soul-level contentment because we have Jesus. You see, Christ loves us too much not to invade every part of our lives and, pro and produce true and authentic contentment. Even in the parts of our lives that seem mundane and routine, that's why I said hey, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all the glory of God, even when you're hungry, Christ is producing this authentic level of contentment. Even in the midst of routine, even in the midst of mundane, even in the midst of real need and real lack. You see, because Christ has made us a new creation, our new identity is now blessed. 
My identity is not entitled. My identity is not one that goes without. My identity is not a person who has the short end of the stick. My identity is now blessed. God looks at me and he says, complete. Colossians 2.10 says, you are complete in him that were complete could also be translated filled. Some versions say you are filled up in Christ. Literally, you're full. You're complete. You're good. And the reason Paul could say, I've learned to be content in all situations, was because he knew in all situations, whether he had nothing or he had a lot, he had Jesus. And because he had Jesus, he was good. Philippians 3, 7 through 8, just the chapter back. He says, but, in every, but everything that was gained to me, I consider to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul said knowing Jesus, spending time with him, abiding in his friends, that's the most fulfilling, that's the most valuable, that's the greatest treasure I could ever experience because Christ was his greatest treasure he could go without. And because Christ is our greatest treasure and he's in us producing the soul level contentment, we can experience that. I mean, before Paul uh, met Jesus, he had a lot of good things going for him. He had the prestige. He was part of the religious and political elite. He had the power. When Paul spoke, things happened. He had zeal. He was looked up to. I'm sure there was a lot of financial wealth that went along with that, but Paul said, it's all nothing compared to knowing Jesus. You see, in Christ, we have the greatest gift that we could ever imagine. And because we have the greatest treasure this world could ever know, our hearts are full. In Christ, we are full. Because Christ is in your heart, is now full, you can experience the soul-level authentic contentment in the midst of even real need. And when we realize the treasure that we have in Jesus in our hearts, we'll experience that soul-level contentment too. But the truth is, this doesn't work without Jesus. I mean, you take all, all, this authentic soul, that, that hinges on Jesus, that hinges on the gospel. You take that away, no wonder we find reasons to complain, but because we have that, and because that's never going away, and that's the greatest treasure this world could ever know, we can always have soul-level contentment. Spurgeon, uh, that pastor I quoted earlier, he described it this way. He said, we can live with that holy carelessness, which is the very beauty of the Christian life. I love that, holy carelessness. It's not ignoring problems. It's not ignoring real needs. It's not like saying, okay, kids, we don't have any food this week, so good luck. You know, it's not ignoring real problems. But what Christ produces in us is a soul-level contentment as we work through those problems and in the midst of those problems. It's, I'm okay with God's sovereignty. I'm trusting God in the middle of not having things. God, I'm trusting you. If I don't have this, either you're going to miraculously provide it or you're going to give me the grace to go without it. But either way, God, I'm okay because you're in control and you're so good and you have lavished so many blessings on me, and because Christ is now in me, I have the greatest treasure this world could ever know. Whether in abundance or in need, we can experience contentment because we have Jesus. Now I get it, this takes faith. When all you can see is the difficulties and the problems and they're just yelling at your face, it takes faith to believe that Christ is the greatest treasure. That's why this is spiritual warfare. It's the spiritual warfare to believe this and to wrestle through this. It's easy to believe a lie that you're less than blessed when it feels like your life is falling apart. It's easy to let your heart look for contentment in other places in Christ. But my friend, let me tell you, that's gonna take you on this roller coaster, up and down, up when things are good, down when things are bad, up and down, up and down, content, not content, content, not content. It's gonna give you the worst kind of spiritual motion sickness. From experience, it will wreck you. But when we anchor our contentment to Christ and realize because we have him, I have everything I need. 
So when you feel that complaint forming in your heart, stop and say, that's not who I am anymore. The real Nick is not without. The real Nick is blessed. The real Nick has everything that he needs in Christ. This complaining isn't me anymore because I am blessed. Friends, that's good news. So we've seen what the sin of grumbling and complaining does to us. We've seen what God does for us. He provides for all of our deepest and spiritual needs. And what does Christ do in us? He gives us this authentic soul-level contentment. And then lastly, what does the Holy Spirit want to do through us? Let's go back to the book of Philippians one more time. Look at Philippians 4, verse number 4. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Paul's like, in case you didn't get it the first time, let me repeat it in this little tiny verse. Rejoice. Let me say it one more time. Rejoice. Because of all the manifold blessings of God that he has given me and the contentment that Christ is now producing inside of me, I can now rejoice. I can have authentic joy. I can be excited because I no longer need to complain. I no longer need to grumble and act like I've gotten the short end of the stick. Yes, the world will give you the short end of the stick every day of the week, but because we have Jesus, we are always winning. And we never have what we do not need. I no longer have to grumble. I no longer have to complain. Instead of grumbling and complaining, the Holy Spirit actually now produces authentic rejoicing. Joy is a feeling of great delight and happiness caused by something exceptionally good or satisfying. To say Christ is exceptionally good or satisfying doesn't even begin to do it justice. Because the object of our joy is not our circumstances, it's Jesus, we can have abundant joy. We rejoice because the good news of what Christ has already done for us. Because he already has blessed us. Because we have all these spiritual blessings in Christ. But Philippians takes it even a step farther. It's not just what Christ has already done for us, although it is. Philippians also stresses the future, not yet reality of salvation on the day of Christ. You can have joy even though your physical body is falling apart and dying. Because one day, you will have a perfect, glorified body. Romans 8, 23, Philippians 3, 21. You can have joy in the face of temptation because not only has Christ given you uh, freedom from sin's power, Philippians 2, 12, and 13, one day, you will be completely and totally saved from sin's presence, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. You can have joy in the middle of your suffering because God can use your suffering for your good, Romans 8, 28, and your suffering can't hold a candle to the glory that awaits for you in heaven, Romans 8, 18. We're to have joy and then rejoice. That means, yes, experience that joy and then experience it again. That's what to rejoice is. It's experience it over and over and over again. Meditate on joy until your heart bursts out with singing. Galatians 5, tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is joy. This is what he produces in us. One of the most frequent commands throughout Scripture is to rejoice. Now, God says it many different ways. He tells us to praise Him. He tells us to rejoice in Him. He tells us to sing to Him. On repeat throughout Scripture, we as Christians, our lives are to be marked by abundant joy. Sometimes we excuse a lack of joy by saying, well, that's just an emotion. I'm not feeling it. That's okay. But then one, why is it a command on repeat? I mean, Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always, that's, that's an imperative. It's a command on repeat. But then two, it's not just this command that hangs over us. It's what the Spirit produces in us when we just yield to him. When we say, okay, God, you take control, the Spirit will authentically produce rejoicing in our hearts. That's what he wants to do. Our life should be marked by joy. So much joy that we just start singing over and over throughout the scriptures. In the Old Testament, uh, the nation of Israel was told to sing a new song. Sing a new song. 
The idea was you can't run out of ways to sing about God's goodness and God's provision. So keep writing new songs, keep singing new songs, because you will never run out of ways. Sing a new one, sing a new one. God's still good, his blessings is still real, Christ is still our greatest treasure. Keep singing about it. Psalm 95, one and two says, come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving and shout triumphantly to him in Psalm. Psalm, Psalm 71, 23, my lips shall greatly rejoice when I sing unto thee and my soul which thou hast redeemed. I don't know about you, but I'm reading these verses and they're telling us to shout, to shout abundantly, to shout rejoicingly, to just get your praise on. I don't really picture a group of people kind of quietly singing in really tamed ways in four, four times. No, it says to shout. Be excited. Shout. Don't sing quietly. Sing loudly. Some translations say make a joyful noise. Yes, sometimes it's going to sound like noise. We don't need to be worried or afraid that, what if somebody hears me singing off key? Let me just put you, we all sing off key, okay? But we're all making a joyful noise together. Why? Because God is so stinking good. Because Christ is in us. His spirit produces rejoicing to the point where all I want to do is sing. Yeah, I don't have enough money. Yes, life is hard. Sometimes it just downright stinks, but God is good. And because of that, I can just sing. I can let loose. I can shout joyfully to the Lord. Wherever we got the idea that singing was this feminine thing, it's just an American thing. Because you look at other cultures, these guys, they sing about everything. Like they do a soccer game and they do this sing and this chant thing. And it looks, there's like a part of me that's like, yeah, that's cool. That I'm like, that's kind of weird too. But they just sing. Stop believing the lie. I mean, there's no footnote on those verses in Psalms that says, shout joyfully unless you're a man. Shout joyfully unless you don't like this song. Shout joyfully unless I'm just not an expressive person. I'm not an expressive person either, but there's no footnote that says I don't have to not shout. There's no footnote that says, well, if this isn't your song preference, you're, you're free from singing. Shout joyfully to the Lord because he's good. Let's keep writing new songs and making up new ones, and we'll just keep making up new ones and singing them. Not only does he tell us to be joyful, he gives us all the reasons and all the ability to. It's not just this hard law hanging over our heads that's like, rejoice. <laughs> no, his spirit comes inside of us and gives us so much contentment and so much joy that it just, I, 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 all I can do, how can I not sing? How can we sit, gathered with our church family, looking at all the manifold blessings of God, looking at how great and how awesome it is and be silent? That doesn't make sense. Yet so often I find myself there because I'm quenching the spirit. You see, when I by faith believe, all the grace made available to me because of the gospel of Jesus. And again, it takes faith. It takes so much faith. That's why it's spiritual warfare. Throughout the Psalms, you'll see Psalms where David's praying for victory over his enemy. He's like, God, come wipe out my enemy, right? There's enemies to your joy. Pray those Psalms over your enemies to joy. God, would you come and wipe out my obstacles of joy? When I by faith believe, all the grace made available to me because of the gospel. When I by faith realize the God's provision and the riches in Jesus are now my new reality. That's my reality. Joy is not this fake facade. It's not hiding because we're afraid to be authentic. Being a joyful Christian is the most authentic thing you can be. And when I, by faith, believe that, my heart will burst out into singing. My life will be marked by radical joy and joy and rejoicing and rejoicing because God is so good I'm not afraid to worship my hands. I'm not, I'm not lifting my hands to impress somebody. It's not a show. It's just, I just, how can I not? On the flip side, I'm not afraid to sing out because I'm afraid of what somebody might think. I'm not thinking about what they think. I'm thinking about Jesus. 
And because he is so awesome and amazing, I'm just going to shout out in song. My heart is so full of contentment and joy that is mine in Christ. All I can do is sing. It's the default of my heart. It's joy. It's rejoicing. It's praise. It's adoration. It's finding all your delight in him because he is the greatest treasure this world could ever know. We are so blessed. So what does the sin of grumbling and complaining do to us? It just it reinforces things that aren't true. It hinders our testimony for Christ. But what does God do for us? Lavishly, generously, abundantly provides according to all his riches. And then he gave us Jesus inside of us who produces the soul-level contentment that can only be found in him. So much so that now I'm rejoicing and I'm excited and I'm singing. Now, all of our main points, and you guys figured this out already, you guys are smart. All of our main points this morning came from Philippians. Philippians is a book, if you talk to somebody who's been a Christian for a while, I'd say, hey, what's the book in the Bible that talks about joy? Most people, they'll, they'll point you to Philippians. Paul talks a lot about joy and rejoicing in Jesus. But so oftentimes our hearts get so burdened by the difficulties that are right in front of us and what we can see that we think it's a luxury. Like we come into church and we're so burdened, and understandably so. No one's uh, making those burdens seem like anything less. We, we come to church and we're so burdened that we think, I, I wish I could sing out. We think singing is a luxury. We think rejoicing is a luxury. We think, yeah, okay, Paul, look, when I'm as spiritual as you, Paul, then I'll rejoice. <laughs> when I've got my life all together like you do, Paul, then I'll rejoice. But you know where the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Philippians? He wrote it from a dingy Roman prison. I think we got a picture of it up on the screens here. It's a maritime prison. Now, obviously, they didn't have electricity, so this was like this stone dungeon that was dark all the time. You can use your imagination to figure out what that hole in the middle of the floor there is for. I mean, this is nasty. This is filthy. This is disgusting. This is like the opposite of everything we think we need for joy. I mean, Paul, when he writes this, is surrounded by every conceivable obstacle for joy, yet he writes an entire book of the Bible on Christian joy. Pastor Nick, tell me how to get there. Psalm 55, one through two, the psalmist, he's wrestling. We, we read some psalms that talk about shouting and rejoicing. Not all the psalms are that fun. Some of them are hard, some of them are difficult. Some of them, there's real complaint and there's real struggle. I mean, sometimes I read some of them and I'm like, are you even allowed to pray that? And in Psalm 55, we see that tension, we see that struggle. He says, God, listen to my prayer. Don't hide from my plea for help. Pay attention to me and answer me. I am restless in turmoil with my complaint. He's complaining to God. He's just laying it all out there. And then for the rest of the psalm, he just lays out his complaint before God. And then in verse 22, he says, cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Psalm 142, 1 through 3. I cried aloud to the Lord. I pled aloud to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him. I take my real troubles, I take my real difficulties, I take these things I want to complain about, and I just give them all to Jesus. I give them all to God. I pour them out to him. I reveal my trouble to him. Although my spirit is weak within me, you know my way. You see, what we see in these psalms, yes, there's real pain, there's real struggle, there's real difficulty. They're pouring out, they're complaining their heart to God, but as you see, as they pour out their complaint to God throughout these psalms, over and over again, there's this shift. Yes, they're complaining, yes, they're working through real struggles, but as they pour it out to God, as they begin reminding themselves of who God is and what he's done for them, as they recognize one day there's going to be this new Messiah that's coming, 
We're on the other side of it now, so we have Christ in us already. As they go through this process, they go from complaining to rejoicing. And over and over throughout the Psalms, you'll see David and other psalmists to go from complaining to, God, you're so good. They go from, life is so hard. I read one psalm this morning, the psalmist was saying, I, I'm just so tired of struggling. I'm so tired of the difficulty. He said, my life is like one that has gone down to Sheol. He's literally saying, my life is like hell. But God, as I focus on you, as I give my complaint to you, God, you produce in me this faith and this rejoicing. And it shifts from difficulty to complaint. How do we experience joy? What we do is we turn your complaint to God and let his spirit turn your complaint to praise. The Bible says, cast all your cares on him for he cares for you. God's so good. God loves it when you complain to him. God loves it when you take those needs to him. God loves it. Turn your complaints to God and let him turn your complaint to praise. Take your difficulties and throw them at God's feet. Remind yourself of how blessed you are in Christ. Then allow Jesus to produce authentic contentment in your heart. Surrender your complaint to him. There's been so many times this week I just I was wanting to complain. And I just have to stop and say, no, that's not who I am anymore. <laughs> that complaining is not Nick Minerva. God, you are so good. I surrender my complaining to you. You have given me Jesus, and he is so rich, and he is so valuable, and he has so blessed me. He's my greatest treasure. And as a surrender, he produces this contentment to the point where I can praise, where I can lift my hands, and I can rejoice. Turn your complaint to God, and let him turn, let his spirit turn your complaint to praise. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.